0: Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast, the number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff, no more vanity metrics, live from India, made for the world.
1: Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. And this is me, your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss product evangelism. And who's the first name that comes to your head when I say that? Yes, we have the amazing Guy Kawasaki with us today. If you are in the world of marketing, you really don't need an introduction to who Guy is. But to give enough context for any beginners in marketing listening to us today, Guy Kawasaki is the chief evangelist of Canva and was the chief evangelist of Apple. And he is currently the brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz. He has been one of the biggest propellants of self-publishing and has authored several books, with the latest one being Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. And he is also a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. So without further ado, Guy, welcome to the show today.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Awesome. All right, Guy, let's jump right in. Evangelism is probably the purest form of sales where you are part of creating a movement, inspiring people to jump out to your bandwagon. And yet, when you put that into a sales context or look at it from a product company's lens, you say it's not all about chasing quotas. So talk to us a little about what is evangelism? Why is product evangelism so different from the traditional form of marketing or sales?
0: Sure. So evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So what an evangelist does is bring the good news. And hopefully you're evangelizing something that is good news. For example, Macintosh that increased people's creativity and productivity, and now Canva that has democratized design. So the difference between sales and evangelism is that sales is usually concerned primarily with one's own success, quota, commission, income. Evangelism is concerned with the other person's success and benefit. So when I tell you to use or ask you to use Canva, it's because I truly do believe it'll make you a better communicator by being able to create great graphics.
1: Right. That makes a lot of sense. And here's something that I've observed. There are very few marketing gurus who keep it real and talk about things in a believable manner and that's one of the reasons why i have so much of respect for you in one of your talks you said it's not what guy touches turns into gold but it's actually guy touching something that's already gold and another statement that goes along with it which has stuck with me for a long time i actually love this you said you cannot evangelize crap but even if you have a great product, you need a cost to make your product or company evangelism worthy. So can you take us through how does one find or build a cost for their product? To make it more practical, maybe tell us the story of what is Canva's cost and how did you derive at the cost?
0: Yeah, well, Canva's cause is to make anybody a better communicator by being able to create effective graphics. And whether it's a presentation, a business card... Uh, social media graphics, uh, posters, flyers, book covers, anything like that. And so uh, the key, I I have some qualities that I associate with great products. So first, great products are deep. That is, there's lots of features, lots of functionality. The company has anticipated what you'll need as you come up the power curve. They are indulgent in the sense that – you feel special about it you feel like you're getting a treat like there's there's something magical happened happening they are also complete uh, in the sense that it's not just the product it's not just the software or the website it's the totality of service and support and third party developers who are part of the community and the final thing is that it's elegant that someone cared about the user interface design so if you have those four qualities uh, I'm pretty sure you will have a great product.
1: Right, right. And uh, how do you go about building that cost around the product?
0: Well, in in many cases, when you have a product like that, you just have to get out of the way. (laughs) So many people will want to be affiliated with, you just have to be able to accept help.
1: Right. And a lot of people listening to us today will really beat me up if I don't ask you this. What was Steve Jobs' method of uh, creating a cause or a story around the product? And by the way, I should tell you that there are a couple of stories that I've been always fascinated about. One is uh, the Think Different campaign. And second is the way Steve Jobs launched iPhone in two thousand seven.
0: Well, that's the genius of Steve Jobs, and he truly understood uh, great products and what people will come to need, and he was a showman, and uh, there are not many people who have all those qualities. In fact, I can't think of one who has all those, maybe Elon Musk, but that's about as close as I can come to uh, someone who has the impact of a Steve Jobs, and so... uh, You know, it's a rare person who can do that. Don't get me wrong. So, uh, you know, but it starts with a great product. If if you had to pick, you know, if you could only do one thing, create a great product. The rest will flow.
1: Yep. A hundred percent. Totally with you on that. And here's something interesting every company has a vision and a mission statement that 90% of their employees don't give a damn about. You know, I've seen CMOs and CROs talking in town hall meetups, making their entire set of employees chant the mission statement. It only makes me laugh. If it's not memorable, then it's not ingrained in the DNA of people but you talk of having mantras and not just mission statements having those uh, two or three words that defines your purpose of existence like you say yours is about empowering people you know help me get a little tactical here uh, how do you go from having a mantra to setting goals for a product evangelist what are the kind of goals does a product evangelist carry
0: well, of course, it depends on the product. But for me, as a Macintosh software evangelist, my quantifiable goal was the amount of third party applications that was available for Macintosh. So, yeah, that's how I was measured. So, it will depend for each. Uh, evangelist yeah, for Canva, uh, it would probably be the number of new signups, and then the number of people who are monthly active users. So uh, evangelism can be quantified in many cases.
1: Right. So does an evangelist, uh, you know, go about um, you know creating pieces of content, or is he, is he or she more of a salesperson? Like, what are the primary roles there? Like, how does that actually work on the ground?
0: I think that on the ground. The most effective tool for an evangelist is the ability to do a great demo. Demos are the key. All
1: right. Now let's look at evangelism from a slightly different angle. You often hear statements like, not all customers are to be treated equally, or something like 20% of your customers are going to contribute to 80% of your revenue, or even something like only one or two of your products are going to be your cash cow, etc., and then from your experience of being a chief evangelist at Apple and now at Canva, you often talk about planting as many seeds as possible. So can you talk to that? Is that about products or is it about vendors or customers? Can you give us an example or maybe a case so that we understand this better?
0: Sure. So first of all, uh, planting many seeds and being open as an evangelist is not necessarily in contradiction with the 80-20 rule and uh, the concept that all, not all customers are created equal, the difference lies in how did you figure out who the 20% is, or how did you figure out who the special customers are? And the I think the difference between evangelism and sales is that often sales predetermines, you know, because of your supposed insight and your supposed ability, you pick the winners in advance. Evangelism and the concept of letting a thousand flowers blossom is that you plant a lot of seeds and you see what takes root and then you help what's taking root. And this is very different than saying, okay, so I know exactly who will use a Macintosh and why. And we were basically wrong. We thought it would be a spreadsheet database and word processing machine. Come to find out it was a desktop publishing machine.
1: So, Guy, another key aspect that you're often taught being a marketing or a salesperson from day one is to talk to the decision makers. Like, say, about 12 years ago, when I started with selling CRM implementation services, I was often asked to reach out to IT directors, CIOs, etc. And you can imagine how many of those folks actually took cold calls. And On the other hand, you talk about ignoring titles while reaching out to people and instead moving on to middle management. So, in fact, in terms of content, I truly believe that it's best to write for the users than the one who sponsors it. So, can you give us the logic of why talking to middle management makes more sense and maybe an example of uh, making an offer that cannot be refused?
0: My observation is that the higher you go in most organizations, uh, the, the more busy that person is and often the less familiar that person is with the real work of the organization. And the real work of an organization is done by the middles and the bottoms. And when you have a product or service, most likely you're trying to change the minds of the people who are actually doing the work as opposed to the decision maker who is far removed from the work and therefore knowing how great your product is. So my concept is work with the middles and the bottoms. Now, now don't get me wrong. I mean, if a CIO or CEO says they wanna help you, take the help. But I'm just saying that you know, don't just depend on top-down decision-making to make you successful.
1: Right. Right. That makes a lot more sense. Let me ask you a slightly controversial question here. Today, pretty much everyone on social media, you know, tries to act like an expert or an influencer. For instance, not many people get that they're not going to become a Gary V by just developing some swearing skills, you know? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay i love that yeah
1: yeah uh, gary b did a lot of work on the ground on the trenches and that is why he is where he is today so um, what i want to ask you is today in the world of clubhouse linkedin and pretty much all the social platforms out there how can a product evangelist make the best use of social media without getting lost in the noise of me too's and wannabes
0: well uh, first of all the product evangelist should be focusing on making the product successful, not increasing his personal brand uh, and his ego. So that's the role. I mean, I wanted Macintosh to be successful, not Guy Kawasaki to be famous. I want Canva to be successful, not Guy Kawasaki to be famous. So that's step number one. And then if if you buy into that, then your social media is all about Information about your product, support of your product, tips and tricks for using your product, it's all about making the use of your product better so that people like it more. It's not about positioning yourself as a thought leader, visionary, or guru
1: right right i'm totally with you on that and uh, that brings us to that section of our podcast which we like to call it more like a game show we call it the rapid fire section so here i'm going to ask you about five or six quick pointed questions your answers need not be short you can just go with the flow whatever comes to your mind so are you up for it of course All right. So here's rapid fire question. Number one, have you ever been mistaken for, you know, either being a Jackie Chan or a Robert Kiyosaki?
0: Every day, <laughs> <Okay>. every day.
1: <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. So did somebody come to you and uh, take a photograph or wanting to take a photograph?
0: All the time. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> love it. All Asians love. look alike. That's why.
1: <laughs> love that. Love that. All right. So uh, here's question number two. Yes. Here's a statement that not many people would expect from Guy Kawasaki. You know, it goes something like,
0: <laughs> "Oh, <Uh-oh. laughs>
1: so it, it goes something like, I didn't want to change the world. I just wanted to change my car. <laughs> Do you mind explaining that?
0: <laughs> okay. So when you talk to many, quote unquote, visionaries, thought leaders, and gurus, and you ask them about their motivation, they come up with the kind of motivation that you would say, you know, at your high school graduation uh, commencement speech, or if you're in a beauty contest, you know, it's that personal statement about changing the world, ending climate change, making the world uh, a safer place, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, I understand that, but I was just being honest that w- when I was a kid. I came from a lower middle class family, and several things happened to me in my youth. First, I was uh, robbed on a bus twice, and also, when I was in high school, somebody gave me a ride in a Porsche, and then when I was in college, my college roommate's mother let me drive her Ferrari. And so rather than telling you that I wanted to democratize personal computing and that was my goal in life, I will tell you that I wanted to live someplace where I wouldn't get robbed and I wanted to go from a lousy car to a good car. And that's what made me study hard and work hard. And that's the God's honest truth. It might not be what you want to hear, but that's the God's honest truth. (laughs)
1: I really love that. You know, that's that's uh, way more practical and probably that's a good motivation, too. So here's question number three. You know, I heard you speak about this. You said your teacher suggested to your parents that you be pulled out of the public schooling system and that made the biggest impact to your life. So did you ever get a chance to meet that teacher later and thank her?
0: No. You know, I she was my sixth grade teacher. And so See, I was born in 54. How old are you in the sixth grade? I don't even know. 12, maybe? <laughs> so, you uh, know, she, b- before I came to this understanding of the impact she had on my life, she passed away. So I never did, never did do that.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Before I uh, go to my uh, rapid fire question number four, let me give you a little bit of context. You know, this is about realizing the actual business that you are in. So let's talk about Kodak. You know, they should have realized that they are in the preserving moments business and not in the chemicals on films business. Same goes with Ice Factory or Rovader Breads and a lot more companies. So with that context, the question I want to ask you is, assuming that a customer is not going to help you get to the next curve, how do you realize what is the actual business that you are actually in?
0: Well, uh, that's two different questions, right? So getting to the next curve and realizing what business you're in are not necessarily the same thing. And as you say, I think that Kodak was in the preservation of memories business. So that's what they should have figured out as opposed to being in the chemicals business. Now, getting to the next curve was thinking about what would make preserving memories much easier and better. And that was digital photography, not chemicals photography. And so those two things are separate, uh, closely related, but separate. And so uh, companies have to realize both that, you know, you have to realize that you're in the preservation of memories business. Okay. I mean, you you could realize you're in the preservation of memories business and still stick with the chemicals. But if you at least realize you're in the preservation of memories business and you see that a digital sensor can preserve memories better than chemicals, I would hope that you would say, huh you know, uh, let's get into this digital sensor business.
1: Right, right. That makes sense. Probably uh, that's why Netflix uh, probably named themselves that way, I
0: guess. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, Netflix is not blockbuster.
1: All right. So uh, here's my question number five. You you believe that all of marketing boils down to a two-by-two matrix of unique and valuable. So for all our listeners, you know, can you explain uh, how that matrix works and how can they fit their product or their career into that?
0: Sure. So, Boy, you should have done a lot of research on me. So uh, a two by two matrix, the vertical axis is the degree of differentiation or uniqueness. The horizontal axis is how valuable your product or service is. And I'm saying that the magic quadrant, the holy grail is in the upper right hand corner where you have a product that is unique and valuable because that's where You make history. That's where you make margin. That's where you make money. That's where the action is. And so that should be your goal. And if you're an engineer, your goal is to build that product. And if you're an evangelist, your goal is to convince people that it's true, that you're unique and valuable. And I think that explains all of marketing and product innovation.
1: Right, right. Totally love that. And uh, here's the final question. And this is going to be a slightly casual one, at least relatively. And here it comes. You took up hockey at the age of 48 and surfing at the age of 62. How do you do that?
0: (laughs) How do you do that? I I mean, I I took up both sports because my kids took up those sports. So, you know, I, I think many parents, they make their kids take up their sports, right? I do the opposite. What my kids take up, I take up. Except I have one kid who has taken up wingsuiting, and I am not taking that up because I don't want to die. So So when my two sons took up hockey, I took up hockey, and when my daughter took up surfing, I took up surfing. And I think it's a lot about uh, one's mindset. So if you have a fixed mindset, or you believe, you know you're 44 when I took up hockey, 60 when I took up surfing, if you have a fixed mindset and you say, I'm too old, to learn hockey, having never skated before, or I'm too old to take up surfing, having never surfed before. If you have a fixed mindset, then you don't even try. But I have a growth mindset. And so it never occurred to me that, oh, you can't learn hockey at 44 and you can't learn surfing at 60. I can honestly tell you that that Line of reasoning didn't really occur to me. Now, I I did realize how hard it is because let's just say very few people take up hockey at 44, having never skated before, and very few people take up surfing at 60, having never surfed before. But I'm just a growth mindset kind of
1: guy. I I love that. You know, one thing that my kids have taken from me is uh, sitting before Zoom calls. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's funny.
1: We are coming towards the end of this episode. There was so much packed in those, uh, you know, 20, 25 minutes. So before I let you go, you know, if you had to share a parting message to our audience who are more of B2B marketers, what would that be?
0: Yeah, you've got to subscribe to my podcast. That's number one. So my podcast is called Remarkable People and it's at remarkablepeople.com. And I have truly remarkable people on my podcast, like Jane Goodall, uh, You know, Margaret Atwood, Stephen Wolfram, the creator of Mathematica, MacArthur Award winner, Angela Duckworth, the author of Grit, another MacArthur Award winner, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple. And so if you want to learn how to be remarkable, guess what? You just go listen to the Remarkable People podcast. So that's one thing I want to tell. The second thing is, uh, as as a rule for how you operate in life, I think- one very good way to operate is you never ask people to do something you wouldn't do. So don't ask your customer to do something that you wouldn't do. Don't ask your vendors. Don't ask your employees. Now, this assumes you're not a psychopath. But generally speaking, if you're not asking people to do something that you wouldn't do, then you'll be okay.
1: That is amazing. And usually, you know, to all our guests, uh, I generally ask them, what is the best place to find find them? I wouldn't do that with you. But instead, I'll ask you, what is probably the best reason that people can connect with you?
0: The best reason to connect with me? I don't know. Well, listen, I, you know, you, you heard my mantra, my mantra is to empower people. So if you want to be empowered, I hope that my writing and my video and my podcast will empower you and help you to be more remarkable. So that's the reason.
1: Amazing. And thank you so much, Guy. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, thank you.
1: And for the listeners of the podcast, that's that from us. And uh, until the next time when we connect with you with another amazing person and another great topic, that's all from me. And this is Bye from Yag. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you.